Yahweh said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Amen. May we give heed to the word of our God this morning. Please be seated. Well, the message this morning is entitled, Can't Stop God's Favor. And there's a little play on the word favor. We read favor in the, in the passage. The favor there uh, in the Hebrew is the same word for grace. It's chen. And so we'll, we see this understanding that this, this, there's that, that, that idea of grace is looming in the background large in the grand story of grace and in God's plan of salvation. The, I, I would like to take an opportunity before we get started to get your minds thinking. I'm going to ask you a series of questions that hopefully are going to cause you to think through some, uh, at least one relationship and get you on this idea or, or at least understanding the idea of favor in relationships. So my, my first question as it relates to uh, favor in a relationship is try and, well, it's really not a question, I'll just ask you to try and reflect back to a relationship where you were incredibly favored by the other person. Could be a, a parent, child, it could be uh, a teacher, it could be somebody who mentored you, it could be a coworker, it could be a boss. Try and put in your head that relationship, whatever one that comes to the top there. And then let me ask you these series of questions. First, how were you favored? Think back on the, the actual tangible ways that you were, you were favored by that person. And then, how did that favor granted to you by that person make you feel? What were the emotions? What were you emoting as a result of, those, of that favor that was being shown you? And then, how does that emoting make you think or reciprocate back on to that person? What, would that, what did it make you start to feel for that person who was showing you favor? 
And then lastly, how did that relationship of grace, of incredible favor, aid you in life? Because when we are favored, there is an interaction, an interplay that carries us. We value it. We, we look to those relationships when things get hard. Is there something in your life that you remember back that, man, it really helped me in this time because of that relationship or is helping me now if it happens to be someone who is actively in or still in your life? Well, today we're going to look at God's favor towards his covenanted people. Notice I didn't just say covenant. I I purposely said covenanted because it's a two-way. I want you thinking that we are both the people that God has covenanted with And we are the people that have covenanted back to God to say, we are your people, you are our God, and we worship and want to to love and obey you in that sense of that covenant that you have laid out for us. So we're going to look at at God's favor towards his covenanted people and the inability of the outside forces to hinder God's favor. The inability of outside forces to hinder God's favor in our life. Because we are his covenanted people, people that he has initiated the, the relationship, and we have responded. So grab your uh, bulletins that, uh, as we always do every week, look towards the back where the, the uh, outline for the sermon is listed, and know that this is your takeaway. This is the, 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 the thing that you need to leave with in order to understand What was the practical, tangible point of this today for me? We're going to read, and we're going to study, and we're going to know accurately the scripture back then. What's its application in my life? And the application or the takeaway is the powers of darkness are incapable of stopping God from lavishing upon his covenanted people his unmerited, we didn't earn it, God just gave it, he chose us, overwhelming, distinct, And saving, you might put the word favor in there, I have grace. I want you to continue to think favor and grace back and forth as you listen to what God is doing in and through his word today. Now normally, because this is dealing with the the plagues and we need to better understand what's going on with the uh, in the ancient Near East as it relates to what they know and, and and as far as false gods and all of that, normally I would give a, a lead into and I have done so for the last nine plagues on what's the polemic, what is the argument against the false god that God, that, that Yahweh, the true God, is attacking about the ancient Near East gods of the Egyptians, and what is the punishment or judgment on them, what's the act of decreation? He moves creation backwards to punish him. That's what all of the, the uh, plagues show. He's not just the god of creation. He's the god who can also decreate. He's that much more than the false gods, the fallen angelic beings that want to be worshipped and play the gods of Egypt. So we have this, normally I would give you that, I'm going to give it to you in the the passage today. You have enough of this background to kind of follow uh, that when I get to it, I think you'll see the, it'll just mean more at the time that uh, uh, the Lord unfolds it. Uh, So with today, we're going to first look at um, the fact that Neither, no outside force can stop God's unmerited and overwhelming favor of grace to his covenant people. We're going to deal with the unmerited and overwhelming favor and grace. But if you pick up Exodus 11, 1 through 3, and you've taken a break in reading the Bible, 
And in other words, you, we, didn't, we weren't here last week in, this, in chapter 10. We were in Mark, Pastor Pete was preaching. So that means I know you guys have probably forgotten what we did in, in chapter 10, what the Lord did. And you're going to need something because what's going to happen is Moses, through the inspiration of God, has interjected verses 1 and 3 to his people. Moses has said, I need the people reading or hearing by way of being read to this in the book this revealed word of God to understand this before I move on. So what we're looking at today is we're, we are not done with uh, Moses being in the company of Pharaoh after the ninth plague. This dialogue as we enter into the tenth plague is still occurring. Moses hasn't turned. Remember, we're going to see, I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read the last few passages of the last chapter. Uh, he said to Moses, hey, you come into my presence again unwanted you intrude in here and you're a dead man and then we also we get to chapter 11 and, and you start to read one and three and you're going i can't figure out where we are and and then all of a sudden you get to four and you're huh that's because something happened earlier that moses wants everyone to know so let me back up and read exodus chapter 10 and read verses 21 to 29 and I'll just go over it briefly. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. So we see the ninth plague. But again, we were reminded that it was darkness, <clears throat> a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did any, anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Right there, Right during that three-day three period, the best theologians, at least the theologians I think who have it best, have said, this is where one through three take place. While the Egyptians are in darkness, God is in their presence. God has said, I will, ever since the burning bush, I will be with you. That is a, a, a very important thread of truth that is going through this. It's, he is the one that's going to lead them through this suffering, that, that, through the ten, ten plagues, and lead them out into, or I should say, into the wilderness, but out of bondage. So God is present, Yahweh is present with the people of Israel, and particularly Moses, and he, he's, he, it is there during that three days of darkness over there, and yet three days of light still, the light's acting like it should, um, in the land of Goshen where the Israelites are parked within Egypt, that this conversation takes place. But let me continue explaining verses, uh, the lead-in verses from chapter 10. So then verse 24, then Moses called, excuse me, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones may also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Pharaoh always has, I won't give it you completely. There's always strings attached. Uh, 25, but Moses said, you must also let us sacrifice and burn offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take care of that. Excuse me. For we must take care uh, to serve Yahweh our God, as we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you're new to listening to this, we need to understand that Yahweh Pharaoh, hardening Pharaoh's heart is, a, is punishment. It's judgment against his heart. At the same time, God is using that judgment to show the rest of the world, not just the Egyptians, not just the Israelites, that he is the most powerful God. In fact, in comparison to him, he is the only self-existent, that's what Yahweh means, 
I am who am. I am the only one who is self-existent. I am God. All others are fallen, false gods. False meaning they're fallen spiritual beings from the spiritual realm. They are not truly gods, not worthy of you being worshipped. So we know those two things are going on in verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For the day you see my face, you shall die. This is much the ironic and prophetic statement he is saying. There's going to be an irony here that ties into the final plague. And we'll see that, oh, you accuse, you think you have the power to kill me? What is Yahweh going to do to A, your firstborn, and ultimately to Pharaoh himself? He will bring death. And we're going to find out why that is. We're going to see some connecting points. And then verse 29, Moses said, as you say, as you have said, you will die by as you, as you have said. Your own words will, will sound the judgment or have sound the judgment against you. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Now, remember, this is the, the not, you know, he's actually going to see him again. But remember, it has to deal with Moses is told you cannot come into my presence. You cannot intrude into my presence. You can't come into the courts of my palace without me calling you. That would lead to Moses' death. So when we get later on and we see that they're actually interacting, you'll see that there's a reason why it's allowed. It's separate than intruding. Okay, let's continue. Now we hit at Exodus 1, 1 through 3. Now we get to hear why Moses was this so important that you had to interject it right here and, this, and, and make sure that the Israelites knew this. What is it you need us to know about God and Yahweh? And so they, Moses is going to tell about the conversation he had during the three days of darkness that the Egyptians were experiencing. So, Exodus, so again, we're dealing with can't stop God's unmerited and overwhelming fa- excuse me, favor or grace. And in light of that, now let's read what's going on. Exodus 11, 1 through 3. Excuse me, yeah, 11, 1 through 3. Yahweh, and it's interesting, our, our ESV says, Yahweh said to Moses. That's one reason why it messes us up. If, we, if I do something in the English that, this, that the Hebrew allows us to do, it'll clarify. Let me add one word. Yahweh had said to Moses. That's helpful. Something passed, and we can see it clearly. It's not like Moses is standing there in this conversation, and all of a sudden he's got connection to God, and God's giving him more additional information. He's trying to multitask with Pharaoh, and he's getting some information from God, and he's trying to talk to Pharaoh. No, this, is, this took place before. Yahweh had said to Moses, Yet one more, excuse me, yet one plague more, I. And in the Hebrew, the I is emphasized. He, and listen why it's emphasized. It would, in, the, in the English, we do things to emphasize the I by saying myself behind it. So let me read it this way. Yet one more plague I myself will bring upon, upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Now this is interesting. This could be easily overlooked. Moses knows that the last plague is the death of the firstborn. One more plague. When God says one more plague... See, the whole time Moses doesn't know how many plagues there's going to be. God never says, I'm going to do t- ten plagues. Moses is waiting. When does, it, when does this plague come, this plague that you, the only plague that you told me ahead of time, the plague of the death of the firstborn? And now he says one more. So if you're Moses, you're going, ooh, I now know what's going on. We're, we're, at, we're at the end. I know that, but I know which one it is because you already told me. What's neat about that is think of the encouragement. 
Have you ever been in a place where it's difficult and you're waiting? Lord, give me that idea of what you're doing and the timing you're doing it in. How long will I be in this tough place? Can you imagine being the, the messenger on 10 plagues? You got to keep going back and he's going to, you know, he's going to say, yep, nope, I'm not, I'm not always going to deceive you and, and believing that he's going to do what God said and he doesn't. And there's all this tragedy that, that takes place in judgment. And, and you've got a bunch of people over in, in the land of Goshen who originally said, yeah, I don't know, Moses, I'm good with following you. And there's that question, and you're wondering, am I going to be able to still lead these people? Or is God going to give me favor with my own people, let alone favor with these people? Finally, he knows. Well, folks, we know. We know God has shown us favor. We know how the story ends. We know in the book of Revelation how it all ends. We know that our Christ, our Savior, is coming back. So we stand as Moses going, thank you, God. It helps to know the rest of the story. It helps to know the, the trajectory and where I am on that, that plan of salvation. Where are we in history? This is what Moses has the, the blessing. He's been given the favor to know. So we continue on. Afterward, he will let you go. And we talked about, there's two words. There's, and this word is the shalach. This is the Hebrew word that gives the idea of we're gone. We're not coming back. This is what we've been waiting for. God has said, we're gonna, you are going to go. Every time Pharaoh uses the word go, he uses halak, not shalach. And that means come back again. That means temporary going. And God says, no, no, no. And when Moses hears this, he's like, it's done. We can start moving that direction. We're finally going to be released from this slavery, from this oppression, from this nation. He continues on. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away. In the Hebrew, it says uh, that word drive you away in Hebrew is actually only one word, garash. And he says it, garash, garash. And we've learned in Hebrew that when in Hebrew parks two verbs, the same verb right next to each other, it's a way of emphasizing it would be helpful in the translation if we understand it like this. If, when he gets to, uh, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. We could say, he will surely drive you away. You can know as I am God that he will drive you away. What, a, what an amazing statement of grace. You can know that this is going to happen. This is my decreed will. Not just my revealed will. This Bible represents God, a lot of God's revealed will, and we break it all the time, and we sin against God. His decreed will, when God decrees something, it happens. End of story. He's sharing his decreed will. He will drive, drive you away. It's a beautiful picture. And also think of this. Here's a people that have been under the oppression of the of the Egyptians, and they will not let them go. What an ironic, an irony, a, a twist of fate that God uses. Not only will they let them go as if it's something passive, like, yeah, I'm going to turn my back, just, just run away. Not, no, 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 no. God says, I'm going to change the heart of these people. They are going to drive you away. There will not be, in fact, the word right after this, it talks about drive you away completely. There will not be one of you left in the land of Egypt. You will all go. What a beautiful picture of salvation. We know that the Lord Jesus is coming back when the last person who is determined before the foundations of the world, who was chosen by God, when that person is transformed by the Holy Spirit, 
that marks the returning of Jesus Christ. We know that there will not be one person who has been ordained before the foundation of the world that will not be saved, that will miss it. Oh, gosh, if you had just only been, been born a little bit earlier, you would have made the boat. Sorry, ark's leaving. You didn't make it. It doesn't happen that way. God is so gracious. We see the favor is a complete. It's a favor of entirety. It has full scope, full range. It can do what it's designed to do because it's God's favor. It's, a, it's an unmerited favor, and it's an overwhelming favor as we start just to understand and comprehend this. He continues on. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask. We're going to talk about the ask portion. Notice the people have to do something. They are involved here. We're going to get back to the ask. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of, his, of her neighbor for, and in the, in the Hebrew it actually says articles of silver and gold. It doesn't mention jewelry. The, the authors put down or the translators put down jewelry because we see later that, that their jewelry is used to create the, the, uh, uh, the golden calf. So they know that it was at least that. But the word articles gives a much bigger scope. It's, it's earthenware. It's their pot. It's whatever they use to, to make little uh, um, containers out of. Even the Egyptians were known for the, the more royal ones, more, get this, golden clothes. Interesting. They are going to get it all. They are going to, to have the favor of the Egyptians where the Egyptians just want them gone. Have what you will, whatever it will take. Get you people out of here because your God is terrifying us. We are no longer a people of grandeur, the superpower we used to be. You have brought us to our knees and we just want to live at this point. What value is anything in your life when you're drowning in the ocean? All I want is a rope. Throw me a lifeline and let me be saved. This is their way of saying, you want, you want something from us? You want gold and silver? God has given them hearts to say it means nothing to us. Take it if that is what it brings about an appeasement of God. Your God is so powerful. Go. We don't care. We just want our lives. So we see this incredible 180 of favor. The people who used to oppress will now give of everything just to get them to go. And we continue on. You know what? I actually want to make a point here because this is an important part, point. They give up their treasure. Gold and silver, just like it is today, is a treasure. It's of greatest value. God overwhelms them with favor, them being the Israelites, by having the uh, Egyptians give of their greatest value as far as materialistically or materially. Um, he doesn't just, they don't just give, you know, good wood things. They give the most valuable things to any economy. And we're going to see how that plays out. He's dealing with it on a physical level. We're going to look at it as a, on a spiritual level in a, in a little bit. And then verse 3, And Yahweh gave the people favor, or grace, it's hen, in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the, the man Moses was very great. What makes him very great? He's a man of his word. Um, there was a, an old commercial that most of you won't remember, um, but it used to be that when E.F. E. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. You know, they, people would be having a conversation in a room, and E.F. Hutton, I don't even, must be a financial place. I don't even remember what it was. Um, and if, you know, the commercial would go, and all of a sudden, someone would whisper to someone else, oh, about E.F. Hutton, and the whole room would stop because they wanted to hear, oh, wait, those are the people that, that are financial people that can help us out. 
so everyone would stop. And that's how the commercial, the tagline, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. Well, think about this. Everything Moses has said would come to pass as a representative of Yahweh comes to pass. Hate him, love him. You don't care. You need to hear what he has to say because it might mean your life. If you don't get grasp what he has to say, you may be a dead man or a dead woman. I need to hear. What did Moses say? Shush. I got to hear Moses. Everything else is secondary when Moses speaks. That's the idea of he's, he has been made great. It's not that they love him. This is the guy that's, that's bringing them to their knees as a nation. But man, is he valued. This is the picture of, of what is happening. And Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So let me ask you, as it relates to this, we need some takeaway, some application. Does this kind of unmerited, God choosing to be giving his favor, this overwhelming grace exist for us today? Or is this something that just happened in a story in the Old Testament and, the, and this story of this uh, exodus, this, this fleeing, this salve, salvific fleeing? Is that just a story? Or is there something more that applies to us? Well, let's take a little... I want to I make sure we understand what's going on here. We are now the people of the New Testament. We're the people of the New Covenant. Sometimes we don't understand the correlation to the old stories. And we have got to make this connection. I need to build this bridge or you're going to miss the value in your own theology. So think of it this way. The, the exodus or the salvation of the, that, that came through the plagues by God is a picture of a physical salvation that is always going to point to a spiritual salvation. That's the new covenant. What happens? God, through Christ, is, it makes it possible that we are saved. So let's look at these correlations. So the physical salvation of the Israelites out of the judgment of God upon evil. God has said, oh, the Egyptians and their, their Pharaoh, who is their God. Pharaoh is supposed to be the incarnate God of the people, of the gods that they worship. God has said, it's time. I am going to punish you, and I'm going to punish you, and in the, minute, in, the, in the midst of that punishment, the people will know how great I am. The Israelites get to escape that punishment. The, in the escaping the punishment that, that the Egyptians get, there is salvation that takes place. You're starting to hear the New Testament, what happens through Jesus. The spiritual salvation of sinners, you and me, we're all born as sinners. The spiritual salvation of sinners out of the judgment, the righteous judgment of God, because we are sinners, comes through the punishment of evil, but it's not Jesus' evil. Jesus takes all of our evil. Uh, when I say all of our evil, I'm talking about the people who repent and believe. You fail to repent and believe, you take the punishment yourself. My shoulders aren't big enough. I know I'd be damned to hell, and I was damned to hell. And, and le- until it came to the day that God opened up my heart and I realized, hey, Nikki, you ain't going to do so well. You need to realize that you, are, you will never be able to pay. You are not good. All that pride you got, it'll count for nothing. In fact, it'll go work against you. Only Jesus, my righteous son, has the ability to pay and take the, the, the penitently, the punishment that you might escape that which is coming for all those who do not count my son as their savior. Well, look at that. Let's look at another. Is that it? Are we just saved? And then we, we stand around going, what do we do? Well, 
God did say we go to church and we see people at church, and that's kind of what we do as Christians. Oh, no. Oh, no, we're saved for a purpose. Let's take a look. And we can see this purpose lived out uh, um, to some degree in the, in the older, then looking back in the Old Testament. But boy, Paul does a great job of sharing it with us and unpacking it from what we saw in the, in the Old Testament and going, oh, now I'm getting it more clearly. So we had the, in the Old Testament and the, the salvation of the, of the Israelite people, the chosen covenanted people of God by way of their exodus. The, the physical salvation of those saved out, were saved out of the oppressive power or control of Pharaoh. They're saved out of that power. Well, then Paul's going to, and all of, of, all of the disciples, all of the New Testament builds on that, but, but particularly Paul, that the connection is this, to the spiritual salvation. This is the spiritual salvation of those saved. The, the Old Testament was saved physically. New Testament saved spiritually by what Jesus Christ has done out of the oppressive power, the controlling power, not of Pharaoh, but of sin. Pharaoh only represented sin and evil. He's the one who represented the, the, the uh, he was the representative of Satan himself. That's what we are saved out of and for. Now, let me get to the for. Listen to this. God's grace that he lavished upon us has a purpose in our lives. That's the pretext, the pretense that I'm giving to you. His grace is not some hyper grace, some Prosperity gospel grace. Okay, we're Christians, so now, baby, open up the, do- the, the, the storehouses of what heaven's got. I'm just going to ask, and God's going to lavish upon me. Like there's no context to what God is looking to lavish upon us. What is this? What are these things? What are these graces? What are these favors that God wants to lavish upon us? And for what purpose do they stand? Because we're going to be asking the wrong things. We're going to go to God in prayer and ask the wrong things if we don't understand what it is that we're called to ask for. So we look towards Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 4. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. It would be helpful if we, if we understand in and through Christ. The idea is by what Christ did, we, now have, we are now are blessed and have access to these blessings. In Christ with every spiritual blessing. He didn't say physical blessing. Sorry, prosperity gospel. You got that one wrong. He's talking about spiritual blessings. So let's see if, he can under, if we can understand these spiritual blessings. In the heavenly places, that's the storehouse of heaven, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the, of the world, that's the starting place of, of, his, of his grace and favor towards us. Wow, before the foundation, that means before there ever was anything he created. We had that favor in standing with him, not by anything we did. We weren't even around to do it, to say, hey, yeah. And he certainly didn't look down a corridor of time and say, oh, that Nick is going to be a swell guy. I'm going to do what I'm going to do for Nick because he's going to be so swell. No, this is God doing what God does as a matter of God's own choosing and pleasure. So we see here, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be, here's the, what we are called to use, the spiritual blessings. He has given us all spiritual blessings. How do we use them? Here we go. That we should, or you might say, in order that we should, be holy and blameless. Oh, the spiritual blessings in heaven 
are designed that we ask for them for the purpose of being made holy and blameless. Why? Because that means we're being made more and more into the image of Christ, which was always God's intent on every human being. So with that understanding, and let me just give you, if you don't understand blameless, blameless is not a synonym, a synonym for holy. It is not the same thing. And hopefully you'll leave here going, oh, I really like blameless. Holy means that we are set apart and more, I'm going to use the context of moral, morally pure. There is not sin within us. That's a trajectory. Blameless is the one that says, but you fail on this side of eternity. You fall, you become able to be blamed for sin, but because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can now confess our sin and know that he forgave our sin because he is our savior. So blameless means a lot to me because as a pastor, I sin daily. And I need that ability that Christ has given us, not just once, one time, but that I can, can keep coming back to him. Not that my salvation is ever in jeopardy, but I'm continuing to sin. And I need a savior that can remove that hindrance of sin in my relationship with him and whoever else I sin against, my wife, who happens to be in closest proximity. She gets more of my muddy sin than any other person in the world. The one I love most gets more of my sin than anyone else in the world because I'm in close proximity and I'm a sinner. Guess what? You function the same way. So I need, I love, I appreciate the blamelessness. I can stand blameless only after I confess my sin, ask God to give me a truly repentant heart that I don't want to do it again, I confess it to the one I sinned against as far as on the relationship level of the earthly level, and I stand blameless. There is nothing you can hook on me and say, oh, Nick, you are, you are actively a dirty, rotten sinner. Uh, in some sense, I am in the sense that I continue to sin, but there's nothing that God hasn't done already through his son because I have gone to him and said, will you please forgive me? And he has. I don't carry the weight of sin. Sin can't control me because of what Jesus Christ has done. I now have power over it, and sin can't hold me down. I don't drag the baggage of it through my relationships because I confess it. I am now made blameless. But there's so much more than that as well. Look at Turn to, uh, well, if you, if you happen to be in Ephesians, just flip over to Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. And we will get to see that God still desires to overwhelm us, but again, not with the physical pleasure, or excuse me, treasure that was the gold and the silver like the, like the Egyptians gave the Israelites. But I want to give this, this sin a name, or excuse me. I want to give this grace a name, not sin a name. I want, this name is transformational grace or transformational uh, favor. You can say that. Listen to Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him, Paul is speaking of God, who is able to do far more abundantly. Listen, he's, it's, this is, a, this is not, a, not a give. This is to, to make a being, to make possible. This is God doing the doing, if that makes sense. So listen to this. Now to him, God, in other words, now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work in us, that's the person of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us the power to be transformed, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now let's talk about the ask. 
I told you that we would talk about the ask when we looked at the, the, uh, the passage from, our, uh, from today out of Exodus. Look, the people, God instructed the people, the uh, Israelites, to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for those things that would be, be we understand to be treasures. The ask isn't one for one. We don't go to our neighbors and ask that, and, and do that, trans, that asking God by way of going to our neighbor. Um, no, the ask is the principle that carries over. We go to God and ask for the treasures of heaven. We ask. Let's say you need strength. Did you have a, a difficult week last week? I did. I had a personally draining and emotionally draining week. I can go to God and ask, give me, please, Lord, the strength I need to make sure that I do the due diligence to put in this, this sermon what I need to do, despite all the distractions that are going into this. Keep me focused. Keep me, give me the strength to do it. What about you come to a place where you need wisdom? Lord, I'm looking at it. I don't know what to do. Is it A? Is it B? Is it A, B, C? I mean, I don't know which way to go. Which way do you want me to go? You ask for the, for the treasures of, of the heavenly places. You read God's word for wisdom. You ask and you engage with other Christians to hear their understanding of wisdom. Because wisdom is a difficult one to understand when your book is this thick. We need help. We need a community, and God has given us community. But as it relates specifically to sanctification, I need personal change. What do I do? I just got done telling you I sin every day to my wife, unfortunately, in some way. Like Paul, as I go further on, as the scriptures convict my heart, I find out that I'm actually sinning more than I thought I was. The sins I overlooked before are now becoming more obvious to me, whether it's covert or, excuse me, overt or now covert, the things that I didn't see before. Wow, I'm, I'm sinning in that way too. I didn't even realize that, God. I'm even worse than I thought I was yesterday. I need you even more. Uh, the point being is that we go and we ask God for his transition, transformational grace, knowing he's got a storehouse of it that he wants to give us. This is not the prosperity gospel. He's not going to give us jets. He's not looking to give us Corvettes. He's not trying to give us money for our bank accounts. This isn't your best day now. This is God's work of transforming us. Go ask God for the transforming grace, the treasures of heaven, so that you might be transformed into the beautiful image that you and I have been, been called and designed to be. So here's the lesson as it relates to that point. If you've been any time underneath my preaching, or, um, you know that the first point, for, for whatever reason, is always the longest point. We will move more quickly here. Don't get discouraged by the time. Stay with me. Lessons learned. Neither Satan nor the world can stop God from lavishing upon you his, his transformational grace. Did you hear that? There is nothing that the world can do, whether it's Satan or the world itself, your friends that don't want you to, to, uh, to live a Christian life or to be changed in character. There's nothing they can do. When you ask God for his treasures from heaven, he supplies it. That is a good and gracious God who gives, not according to our merit, but he overwhelms us with his grace. That's the takeaway. But not only can't God's unmerited and overwhelming favor be stopped, but our second point, we can't stop God's distinct favor for us. 
And we look at the, the next passage, verses 4 through 8. And this is, again, remember, he's standing. He's still standing. This is Moses engaged with Pharaoh. He hasn't left his presence. And he's having this conversation with him. Pharaoh just got done saying, you come into my presence again, you're a dead man. You come in without, you come in by way of intrusion. You're a dead man. I can only call you into my court or I will kill you if you come on your own. So this is where we pick up now again. In verse 4, so Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, about midnight. Why midnight? I don't know. Exactly. I, I know that was, is something that I wish I could tell you, you more definitively. I think there's probably multiple reasons that I haven't yet connected to the New Testament, but I have connected it to the ancient Near East. Midnight. That hour of the night when the ancient Near East was where the demonic presence were most powerful. When the gods, particularly of the underworld, Sheol, as the Bible talks about, are most active, that they're at their strongest it's at midnight this takes place. We're not talking about God doing something, showing a God to be impotent because the God was sleeping and he wasn't really engaged in the battle. This is God showing, uh, I'll go down at midnight. When, they, when these boys are, are, are their strongest, when they're the king of the hill, when they're, when they're ready, when they're sharp, when they're alert, you'll know that I'm God. I didn't catch them off guard. This is when they're on their game. This is midnight in the ancient Near East. So we see this. So Moses said to, to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, about midnight, uh, uh, where am I? I, and again, I, the, I, I'm fascinated. This is I myself. Again, we see Moses, make, uh, God actually making sure Moses says, I want you to know this is me. This is no one else, no confusion. Here we go. I myself will go out in the midst of Egypt. This is interesting. This is the plague that he doesn't work through grasshoppers. He doesn't work, work through frogs. He doesn't work through hail. This is his personal hand of death, of judgment. He is getting very, very personal. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. He stands in the midst of the Israelites as protector. I am now going to stand in the midst personally as judge, as executioner. They will know me as this powerful God. So he continues on. I will go out. And the word out there I think is fascinating. And Moses continues to use this. It's Yatsah. And we've been seeing this. This is the word that means exodus or to exit. He is going to exit his place of, the, of, of, of heaven. This is sort of given an idea of it. And go into their presence. Well, he's in, in, there's a duality of understanding. Again, I just mentioned he is also present in the, in, in the uh, Israelite camp, if you will. But he's going out to, he's, he's doing the exit, exiting to go out into the midst of, of, of Egypt. And every firstborn in the, excuse me, I will go out in the midst of, of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Why did you do that? God, why are you picking on the firstborn? What is going on? Are we talking about innocent babies? What is going on here? Well, we need a little backstory to help us out. Exodus 1.22 says this. And this is after the, mid, the midwives who were serving the Hebrews refused to kill the babies. They're supposed to kill the sons. If it's a, baby, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, you can let it live. Listen to, the, the, to it. This is, this is Pharaoh, the one that God is doing battle with. Um, this is Pharaoh that has given this edict. 
And he says this in Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He's, he's commanding the Egyptians. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast them into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I want every son dead. Oh, Nick, I thought you said firstborn. What's going on there? Why? That's not firstborn. He said every son. Well, let's see what happens in, in Exodus 4.22. When you get to Exodus 4.22 to 23, we read this. Then, and this is God talking to Moses, and he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel, that would-be nation, it's still a gigantic family in Goshen. It becomes a nation when they get to the mountain, the base of Sinai, and he gives them the rules of what it looks like to be covenanted as a nation with God. So in this point in the story, they're just a ginormous family. But, but we see this, that... God says this about this ginormous family. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. All of Israel, those, that people, they are my privileged, favored, firstborn son. That's how I view them, is what Yahweh is saying. In verse 23, I say to you, and he's talking, he's having Moses explain to Pharaoh, and he's now we're quoting God here, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. God makes it very clear. You fail to, to release my, 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 uh, the one I call my firstborn, the nation, the would-be nation of Israel, the family of, of Israel, then I will kill your firstborn. And we're starting to see some connections being born or being understood. The idea is it, well, I don't want to go on with the idea. I want to bear that out in other, in other uh, scripture. Let's continue on in, in our passage today. As we can, uh, uh, it says this, not just will this be a situation in verse 5 of the firstborn of, of Pharaoh, but it'll continue on. It'll be, it'll be far-reaching. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the, of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, this is a way of saying not just the highest, but the lowliest. Everyone is going to be affected by this. It continues on. And um, all the firstborn of the cattle. Interesting. Firstborn of cattle. How'd that get in there? What, what's going on with cattle? I thought we were dealing with human beings that are, that are being, oppressing God's people. Remember, the, for, the, the punishment, the judgment against the uh, Egyptians is a picture of God's decreation or moving creation backward. Mankind and the beasts of the land, of the dry land, were born, excuse me, were created on that sixth day. This is God's decreation that he's bringing. I'm going to do that with the animals, the beasts that, that occupy the land, as well as mankind. So we see God moving backwards. And then verse 6, uh, there shall be a great cry throughout all, all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be. This will not be a, a cry of pain. This is not people dying. I'm dying. Like it's the wicked witch of the, of the, of the east. And she gets, she melts away and she says it over and over again. I don't know if you, any of you kids have seen the Wizard of Oz. Some of us older people have that image in our mind. It's not that. It's not pain. This is the people who, who are the loved ones that have not died. This is grief. Grief of the loss of the loved ones, the firstborn. This was the response of the Israelites. When the Israelites were in, being oppressed, the earlier in our passage, earlier in the early uh, verses of chapter 1, it says that the people, of the Israelites, cried out to God. 
They cried out to God, Yahweh, the one true God, and we see action taking place. Think of the Egyptians. Nine plagues have demonstrated the pantheon of gods that they worship, of these fallen beings that have allowed them to prosper in the past through their evil ways, these fallen beings that are, that are enemies of the throne of God, they have no power. They cannot pray to their gods. This is a grief that is an utter and eternal grief. That's why God talks about, that's why God gives Moses the words of saying that this is a grief that, that will never be understood by them again. It's a, in other words, this is a grief that is isolated to this time because of the significance of it. They have no God to pray to. Their whole system is wiped out of understanding of who is great, who is God. This is, the, this is the, the beauty, the irony of what God is doing through the plagues. He's exposing that no God is real. We can take that message to a fallen world. We are distinct. We have distinctive grace in that we have favor because we are the saved ones. They are the destroyed ones. That plagues are brought upon them. They ultimately are destroyed and never to be reconciled back to God at their death. It is a scary place to be. But we continue on in verse 7. But not a dog shall growl in the little bit clunky. We don't understand it. You know, as, as you're reading it as a, as a Westerner, you would read it this way. And that's why it's been translated as a dog will growl. But not a dog will move its tongue. Well, that's a way in that. That's a, something, a saying that they had that meant that not a dog will growl. Not a dog will show hostility. Who is the dog that he's referring to? Is he talking about an actual dog? Maybe. When we read the Bible, all through the Bible, who are dogs? Dogs are referred to over and over again by the, by the, uh, the writers of, of the Bible as those that stand in opposition to God. They are the pagans. These are the Egyptians. But it's not just the Egyptians. Remember, this is a polemic. This is an attack against a specific false god of the Egyptian pantheon. So let me read to you what this, what one commentator had to say. Um, I think he did an excellent job on this as identifying who is the god that, that God is attacking here in the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. And it says this. The God of the dead was Osiris, and he's a, he's a greater God, but listen to how he identifies himself. You can see how he would be pictured here, although he's a little more peripheral pictured. We're going to see the God in a second. He's a little bit lower God. But Osiris, whose name meant the mighty one, by the way, El, 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 Elohim means mighty one. Okay. Think God have a problem with, that, with his name, Osiris? Yes, God's going to have a problem with that one. Um, now, that's not just the only interpretation. Here's a longer interpretation of his name. The mighty one, he who has sovereign power. Oh, really? Osiris, you got sovereign power? Stop this death, Mr. Sovereign Power. He doesn't have sovereign power. He's a false god. And now we get to what this commentator is identifying, who the more particular god is who, who is in focus. His assistant, that's the assistant to Osiris, was Anubis, the god of the underworld. We're taking on death here. God has got his finger pointed right at death. Anubis supervised the embalming process and guided the dead during their passage to the afterlife. If they're not guided there, they don't, get, they don't have resurrection, they don't get reborn again. And God is showing this God has no power. 
Talk about a grief of understanding this. Now, let me tell you why we know or we believe that it is this God that is particularly pointed to. Because this God is the God who has human form from the shoulders down and a canine's head above. The polemic is against Anubis. Anubis, you, the, the controller of the afterlife that makes sure there's resurrection, that makes sure there's ultimate salvation for those, for the Egyptians, for those who are sinners, for those who are the seed of the serpent, for those who are disobedient and choose Satan as their God, they shall know, that means all of the world shall know that God is powerless. There is no salvation in Anubis. It only comes through Jesus Christ. Now, at this time, they only know it as Yahweh. We now know it, that it only and exclusively comes through Jesus Christ. The the greater picture of the exodus that takes place, the, the, the story of salvation out of damnation, not just out of oppression. It's a beautiful picture. He continues on. Well, let me just let's continue on in verse 7. We get to this, that, and then he's going to tell them why. Uh, what, what's going on? Why? Here it is. That you, that's in the you is in the plural, so he's talking about Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, may know that Yahweh makes a distinction. That's so cool. In the Hebrew, the word distinction there has the idea of distinct by way of treating excellently. It's a particular distinction. It's a distinction of favor. So let me continue on. That you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel and all these uh, your servants, in other words, Pharaoh's servants, shall come, to, come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. It's cool, the, the Hebrew there says, who foot after you. That's how they describe following you. Somebody foots after you. Kind of a neat way, kind of a beautiful way of saying it. And after that, I will go, and then, uh, 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 this is now Moses still talking to Pharaoh. And after that, I will go out. I'm not going out, out of your presence until after that. Uh, uh, he's talking about his ultimate presence. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, in other words, righteous anger, righteous indignation, because of the offense against Yahweh. This guy, this guy Pharaoh, who portrays himself as the incarnate God, has, the, has the, the guts, has the arrogance to say that he could take Moses' life. You got nothing, Pharaoh. My God is the one true God. And Moses steps out of that scene finally. He, and he is, he is angry. We know the, the lesson learned from this point is neither Satan nor the world can stop God from the distinct favor that he gives us as a people of God. He, does, he gives us this distinct favor. It is his treating of us excellent or excellently, not by having to experience spiritual death. We don't ever experience spiritual death. We experience physical death, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And to to quickly uh, finish up here, point number three here, can't stop God's ultimate favor. Listen to this, and as you read along in your ESV, I'm going to change a couple of the words because these are what they're called translation words. They're not they, you have to make a judgment. You have to make a decision and, and, and on the translator for this word to show up because it's, it's not a one-for-one one word that gets pulled in. In the ESV, it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, it would be more helpful if it said, in my opinion, as we're understanding this back and forth, Yahweh had said to Moses. This isn't God repeating this again. 
This is Moses making sure that the Israelites, just as they they needed to understand God's overwhelming and unmerited grace in verses 1 through 3, he's summarizing again now, and he's making sure that the Israelites understand what God has already said through all of the nine plagues. you got to get this, my people, is what Moses is trying to communicate. Yahweh had said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That my wonders, in other words, my power displayed through the plagues, may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And, Moses, and then it says, uh, quote there, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. He did not shalach the people. Not there, not yet, it's coming. And the last lesson learned is that neither Satan nor the world can stop God for his ultimate favor he has given us. You were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. You will be saved because God's ultimate grace, his ultimate favor of you cannot be thwarted. He makes sure of that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the, the truths of this, of of what you shared with us, the application side of this. It's a grand thing to fully understand, or at least better understand what's going on in the Old Testament. But you are so gracious. All that is of the old is for our benefit that we might more clearly know. As you were teaching the Egyptians, the rest of the world, and even your people who you were to know you, you allow us today to know you. You are the God of incredible, unstable, Unstoppable grace and favor. Let us be reminded of that in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our discouragement. Let that ring true in our hearts and our minds for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray.